Hi, this is Mark Graben. This is episode 300 of Lean Blog Audio. This is a post from March 18th, 2020. It's titled, One Doctor's Troubling Experiences in the Emergency Department. So I had a phone conversation um, the day before writing this blog post with an emergency medicine physician after her shift. It would be an unnamed hospital in an undisclosed state. Um, so that I talked to her on Tuesday March 17th to clarify. Um, she had a number of frustrations to share and she doesn't really have an outlet and you know, she doesn't want her name out there for fear of retaliation. But I think more importantly, this isn't about one institution. Uh, she works in a well-respected system. So this um, apparent lack of preparedness and leadership that you're going to hear about uh, in this uh, post, this episode, could you know, this could be widespread. And when I posted my concerns, about hospital preparedness um, for COVID-19 on the blog, you know, I, I, I guess they weren't completely unfounded. Now I'm sharing these concerns in a public way because I think it's important to try to inspire other healthcare professionals and improvement specialists who can be on site to drive improvements right now. Um, I also hope it serves as a reminder to the public to not go to the hospital unless it, it's really a life or death emergency right now. Um, when should I go to the hospital and, and more questions like that um, were covered in a, a webinar that I moderated um, the other day. And um, you can find a link uh, to that by going to the blog post for this episode, leanblog.org slash audio 300. Or you can um, go to my Lean Blog Interviews podcast and that audio from that webinar is posted as episode 361. So you can go to leanblog.org slash 361. And again, for the link um, to this episode you're listening to right now, go to leanblog.org slash audio 300. Um, I do want to note that the doctor uh, I talked to reviewed this post for accuracy before I published it. I'm not a journalist, so I didn't reach out to the hospital for their view or their confirmation of the reality, but I have every reason to believe that this is all true. I'll add the disclaimer also that this post is, again, based on the input of one doctor, and she's not speaking on behalf of her medical group or hospital. But, you know, I'm not in the hospital Gemba or workplace right now because of restrictions on contractors and the general need for people to stay out of circulation. But healthcare workers have no choice but to be out there trying to help care for people. But hospitals do have a choice about better preparing for the sake of doctors, nurses, and patients, and, and anybody else who comes into contact with them, like security guards. So that's the first point in her story. You know, after the call with the doctor, I asked my wife, who was working from home, this question. Who would you expect to be out in front of the emergency department as first contact with patients? She said, a nurse. Well, the answer at this hospital was actually a security guard. The guard was handing out surveys to patients, we don't know in what languages, like handing paper with four questions meant to risk stratify them for COVID-19. The guard had no personal protective equipment or PPE, like a mask, and yet was constantly being put at risk of exposure to an infected patient. The doctor said it's not overdramatic to say they're cannon fodder. She also explained that the guard was working a 12-hour shift and, quote, apparently nobody planned for meals or bathroom breaks. The guard had to ask somebody to call the supervisor because he had to pee and couldn't leave. So the charge nurse from the ER was sent outside to go fill in. 
Well, that wasn't ideal because now if she had an exposure, she'd be running around the ER spreading it for the rest of her shift. So, you know, I would add a thought here that organizations need to anticipate things like this. You need to think through your staffing and your process design. Once issues are identified, work to correct them, but don't repeat the same mistakes every day. And I would argue this situation could have been anticipated, that this was bad design that could have been avoided. It wasn't just, oh, it's a Kaizen opportunity, let's fix it. So let's talk a little bit then about shifting standards on PPE. You know, speaking of masks, the doctor was originally told to wear N95 masks until there became a shortage. Now, apparently blue surgical masks are okay unless they're swabbing or intubating a patient. Now, what they call ear loop masks are reserved for patients and staff are required to, to wear the masks that have double ties in the back. The reason is that ear loop masks that just slip over the ears with elastic are easier for patients. And I, I would agree, I have trouble whenever I have to tie those masks behind my head because I don't do that very often. But now the doctors or nurses um, are slowed down by the tying. And as the doctor points out, uh, their hands are near their faces more, which increases their risk of exposure. Well, let's go back to um, screening patients. You know, the doctor said that if the security guard, who again is not a clinician, has a patient who meets the four survey criteria in front of them, then a nurse is called and the patient is immediately brought back through an appropriately isolated exam room. So, you know, if we're, uh, I, I would add a note here, if we're supposed to maintain six foot distancing, I'm not sure how a guard handing a survey card to every patient is a good strategy. But so as the doctor said, if the patient answers no to just one of the four criteria, they can still have a fever and cough. Um, the patient is placed in a surgical mask and proceed, allowed to proceed into the waiting room and general triage. We'll be right back. As, as she points out, the patient who could have COVID-19 is now sitting next to an elderly person who has chest pain or a child with a broken arm. Now, the doctor points out that even in a pediatrician's office, there are two waiting rooms, one for the sick and one for the not sick. These are lessons learned from prior outbreaks such as measles. And as she, as she asked, why can't the hospital see this triage plan is a really bad idea for patients and providers? Now, as early as last Sunday, clinicians working in the ER suggested moving triage outside the front door under an already covered area. There are apparently no tents available at this facility as some hospitals are doing. But doing this would allow patients to be directed to a specific less centralized area if they have respiratory symptoms before contaminating potentially the entire ER. The explanation for why this wasn't this suggestion wasn't being entertained was a lack of staff to support this model, to which the doctors asked, why not use the telemedicine cart, which doctors have been previously trained to use? No response was offered. What about adding shifts or simply moving the entire triage process outside? You know, there's got to be a better solution than simply throwing up our hands and saying, as she put it, okay, the virus wins. The clinicians were assured that their concerns would be addressed at a Monday C-suite administration meeting, but as of Tuesday afternoon, no changes had been made to the triage process. Nothing had been communicated as a follow-up and the staff and patients remain in limbo. So we're talking about getting testy about tests. The doctor was really frustrated by the current state of COVID-19 testing or the lack thereof. For one, she knows of at least one ER doctor with fever and cough 
with a suspected exposure who couldn't get a test that would have allowed her to return to work ASAP. Instead, she's been forced to self-quarantine for two weeks, causing other MDs to step in and cover shifts during an already stressful time. And this is just the beginning. She said there was, in her words, a lack of direction on testing in terms of who gets tested and who is making the call, the treating physician, the health department, or a hospital administrator. She said who decides changes each day. She complained that requests for consistent top-down algorithm for deciding who to test is ambiguous at best. I think she means the response to those requests. Although the directive to ER doctors has been that they can use their own discretion to, to determine who needs to be tested, it's not unusual for a chart audit by someone not seeing the patient to determine later that the test will, in fact, not be run. It's crippling, she says, as they don't know how to message this to patients. Who calls the patient after they've left the ER, directed the quarantine until called about their COVID-19 result to reveal that, in fact, the test will never be run? I mean, talk about not meeting patient satisfaction expectations. So while test kits are becoming more available, the state laboratory is now over capacity, she says, and it's closed to accepting new tests. Even at the most efficient, this labor-intensive lab test takes three to five days to result. With the state lab overloaded, private labs are stepping in, but at what cost to the hospitals? She suspects this added cost, the state lab versus private, is at least partially driving the hesitation to more liberally test patients. Does elective mean elective? Here's the last section here. She was also frustrated that the hospital was still doing elective surgeries and procedures like knee replacements and colonoscopies. All of the protective equipment being used there will be vital in about one to two weeks when supplies run out. She says, hey, another idea. What about redirecting those staff to help out with the new triage process that needs to be enacted? She asked, why are they being so cavalier? As one article says, the nation's largest hospital associations are pushing back against a recommendation from U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams that providers consider stopping elective surgeries until the coronavirus threat subsides. Quote, our ability to respond to patients must not be prevented by arbitrary directives, said the American Hospital Association, the Federation of American Hospitals, the Association of American Medical Colleges, and the Children's Hospital Association said in a joint letter to Adams last Sunday. So, you know, some hospitals are stopping elective procedures and appointments with the goal of saving capacity and resources for those who really need it. But the AHA seems to be hung up on technicalities as they complain that there's not a clear definition of elective being given. And I think canceling, oh, I'm quite certain that canceling elective surgeries means a financial hit to the hospitals. But why don't the hospitals do the right thing for public health and then do what the airlines and other industries do? They could ask for a federal bailout. I mean, they're too important to fail. So again, uh, the doctor implores um, hospitals to stop doing elective procedures and use those resources and mindshare to start problem solving this minute on the more concerning problem. She asks, does the image of moving deck chairs on a certain ship come to mind or is it just me? So I sincerely hope these problems are isolated. I hope other hospitals are able to avoid these situations or to quickly improve once they find them. Um, so again, if you want to um, find links to um, other resources, the uh, the the webinar where we asked doctors a lot of questions about 
COVID-19 and what you can do, go to leanblog.org audio 300. Thanks for listening.